Morning, friends. Uh, good to see you and a happy new year to you from me. Um, for the first message of the year, we like to listen to what we think Jesus is saying to our We Church family for Kingdom Vineyard and to share it with you. Last January, I'd spent weeks wrestling with a message that I felt sure was from the Lord, but it just seemed a strange challenge to me. So I shared that I felt the invitation of Jesus for 2020 for Kingdom Vineyard was to make sure that each of us had our own relationship with him strong enough that we didn't need to rely on the faith of the person sat next to us in church. Looking back, I am so encouraged. I'm so encouraged that Jesus was so kind to us to give us such a helpful instruction, a heads up for a year that would see the way we do church transformed in a way that none of us would have guessed. I had no idea that COVID-19 was coming and that the way we do, would do life in church would be upended. And the Lord didn't tell me, but the message he gave me for us for 2020 was exactly the preparation I'd have wanted to give to you if I had known. Jesus is so, so kind. So this year, I've been wrestling with this message since uh, about mid-November, as Jesus has given me a Bible verse here, a word from a praying friend there, a pile of miraculous coincidences of people hearing similar messages from Bible verses and sharing them with me. And they've all been building towards the same overall message. So for this morning and for 2021, I want to offer us one simple message, a prayer taken from one verse of Psalm 86, verse 11, which reads as follows, and seeing as it's just one verse, I'll read it myself, shall I? Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart to revere your name. You know what? It's so short. I'll read it again. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart to revere your name. Now, the rest of Psalm 86 is excellent, obviously, and it's well worth your prayerfully reading it through later on. And I usually prefer to preach through a larger chunk of scripture in context rather than to risk taking anything out of context. However, today I offer you this as a prayer for us. I suggest that we adopt this as a prayer for 2021, each of us individually, as a church, and for our friends and families who don't yet know Jesus too. It's a simple two-part prayer but it invites challenge. And it'll find us making potentially difficult, potentially costly decisions as we choose our relationship with God and our obedience and our loyalty to him over the prizes that this world offers and the pressures that this world offers. And on that note specifically, today I want to offer a challenge to us an invitation to ask ourselves, what things do I trust in, rely on, fear or worship that are stealing the place that God should have in my life?
And I want to encourage and invite you, friends, that if you've got things you need to get right with God, it is time. Let's go for a deep dive into this short prayer and flesh out what I'd love for us to be praying this year. Teach me your way, O Lord. I don't know about you, I think the world is getting more confusing, not less. I'm sure I've heard it said that as humanity advances, the more we learn, the clearer things will get and the better things will be. I know I certainly used to believe that. But so far, all evidence is to the contrary. From what I can see, there is more division, more uncertainty, more anxiety around now than I've ever known before. And you know, one of the things I really liked in 2020, and there weren't many things that year that we could celebrate, one of the things I really liked in 2020 was how suddenly the topic of what we could call spiritual formation was everywhere. I started seeing the importance of Sabbath rest, silence and solitude, and being intentional and proactive about how we spend our time with God. Those things come up as if from nowhere and became such important messages in our 2020 upturned lives. I personally got a lot out of reading John Mark Comer's The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, as I know many of you did too. And he and his message seem to have suddenly become really important for this moment that we're living through. But although the upending of our lives with lockdown restrictions may have sent some of us looking for this sort of teaching, I first came across John Mark Comer and this strong emphasis on these practices in January 2020 at the Vineyard UK and Ireland National Leaders Conference where those faithful leaders, and thank you Lord for them, had listened to what the Lord was saying to them and had booked John Mark Comer as the main speaker months before any of us had a clue what was coming. God has been really kind to us. Oh, and as a side note and a bit of a plug, uh, we would love to encourage you to sign up for this year's Vineyard National Gathering, which is that same conference, but this, this time this year, it's online, it's free, and it's available to everyone. So do come along with us and comms team, perhaps you can share a link to it either in the live chat if it started behaving or in the comments or the description, just stick it somewhere and, and that'll appear. That'll be great. Thanks, friends. Good. Deciding to stop to spend time with God and to adopt practices and habits that help us to do so is a really good idea. But there's a crucial difference between meditation or mindfulness or breathing exercises on their own and spending time with God. Exercises that we do to take care of ourselves can be helpful but spending time with God is more than an exercise we do for ourselves within ourselves. It's a connection to an other being, the ultimate other being, the one who is outside of us, but at the same time is the one who designed us and is continuing to work away within us. There's nothing wrong with pausing to rest, to become aware of ourselves and our surroundings. That can be good. But going back to God, becoming aware of his presence, asking him to speak to us. That's restoring and strengthening that connection that not only brings us life, 
but brings all the benefits of God's presence, his perspective, his wisdom, and his loving care for us. A child who scrapes his knee can stop to gather his thoughts, but that's nothing like as good as running back to mum or dad's arms. God promises to place his presence within us and to be at work within us. And this is how he puts that promise in the book of Hebrews, chapter eight, verses 10 to 12, via a drink of water. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel, my people, we could read that. After that time, declares the Lord. I will put laws in their minds, write them on their hearts, I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. God's promise to be with his people in such a way that we know him that we experience relationship with him, not just learn facts about him. I love how the French have the, the uh, connaître verb for to know someone, and as well as the savoir verb to know a fact. God's incredible plan is to fill his people with his presence through his Holy Spirit so that we know him as well as know about him. So let's be honest, if he's real, if he is the loving father who wants to connect with us and to restore us, to fill us with his Holy Spirit, how could anything else compete? I mean, those of us who've known him for a while could risk taking this for granted, but let's pause for a moment and look at that. If Jesus is real, if he really is God, and everything that we've learned about his character is true, then surely, there's just no question about whether we accept his offer of doing life with us, leading us, guiding us, looking after us. It's a no-brainer, right? If there was a God who lovingly designed us, knows everything about us and this world we find ourselves in, and wants to be in a relationship with us where he wants to provide for us, even treat us, bless is the Bible word, then obviously we would want him even if it means letting go of anything or everything else to grab it. It always turns out better than what we were holding on to. And often we learn that those things we were holding on to instead of him were even bad for us. And that's another point worth lingering on. We ask, teach me your way, O Lord, because it is better than my way, than our way. And I think maybe that's our first challenge for today. We so often so easily fall into the trap of thinking we know better than God. It's ridiculous when we say it, but whether it's a bit of the Bible that we find uncomfortable so we avoid studying or thinking about it, whether it's an area of our lives that we haven't quite given to him, or whether it's just simple pride. The pride of, well, I'm different, or I'm doing it my own way. Do you know, it's time to take that to the cross and kill it. He's God. 
He not only knows us better than we know ourselves, he loves us better than we love ourselves. And why would we leave a barrier up between us and him once he's pointed it out to us? How could we invite him to come to us, to meet us and minister to us, to pray, come Holy Spirit, when we disagree with him or don't submit to him? Lord, come and fix me, but don't touch that. Hmm. How about, Lord, let nothing stand between me and your truth in my life and your love in my life. Your kingdom come. If you want to read a little bit more about that uh, I'd point you to Isaiah chapter 58 and 59 it's pretty sobering when we pray teach me your way O Lord we're asking for information I want to know what you would have me to do here God because I trust that it's better than the alternatives we're asking for information we're also asking for relationship yes God I want to live connected to you learning from you, doing life together rather than on my own. So I encourage us, friends, to make 2021 a year where we regularly spend time sitting with God, sitting with him in the quiet, with our Bibles, and asking him, teach me your way, O Lord. It's so simple, and you probably knew it already, but if we did it, it could change everything for us. It's a good prayer. Teach me your way, O Lord. But if it's a relationship that we're talking about, then we need the next line too. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. This is a practical prayer. The psalmist who wrote this verse wants to know God's way, wants to follow his leading so that we can do it. What sort of working relationship would you have if you asked your boss for instructions and then completely ignored them? Parents, what sort of relationship would you have with your children if you carefully told them how to stay safe and they went out and did the opposite? Christians, what sort of relationship would you have with your Christ, with your saviour, if you discovered his amazing offer of restoring the relationship with Father God? You joyfully received it and then ignored what he said about how he wants you to live. Didn't walk in his truth, but decided to go our own way. Actually, the Bible specifically answers that question. And I like how the New Living Translation puts it in Ephesians chapter four, verse 30. Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Some translations say, do not grieve. Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he's, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. We could get away with going our own way if he wasn't real. If church was just a thing we did, because then none of it would matter. But if God is real, if his miraculous signs are real, if his teachings in the Bible are real, if this relationship with him is real and we go our own way, you'd have to ask, 
what are we playing at? One of the most foundational things we learn as we live with God is you are God and I am not. I think when we first discover that there is a God, that is a challenge to our way of thinking. Before we might think that we're the boss of our own lives, we can do what we want, think the way we want. If there is a God, if Jesus was and is who he said he was and is, well, that has to change things. In fact, I think the more we learn about this, the more we learn that we were never our own God anyway, that we were deceived by an enemy who was really pushing us around that whole time. But that's for another day. As we continue to grow in this realization that God is, well, you are God and I'm not, and we grow in our relationship with the real God, we kind of circle around back to over and over that realization, you are God, I am not. I think that can bring us comfort. Hey, I don't have to be in control. It can bring us perspective. I may be wrong. The one who loves me knows me better. It can bring us strength. My own weakness is no longer the end of the story. In fact, I'm held up by the strongest one. In fact, he seems to love it when I'm aware of my weakness and work through me all the more, especially in those moments. And that knowledge that you are God and I am not brings us relationship with him. You are God and I am not. I see you. I want to maintain and deepen this relationship. It's not mastering a force or it's not mastering a personal discipline. This is a deepening of relationship. You are God and I am not. Of course, as we go through our lives, as people seeking to live with God, we bump up against this realization again and again, discovering all the time ways in which we thought we knew that you are God and I'm not, but actually hidden away or twisted, there are some challenges uh, to the way Rather, we've hidden away or twisted some challenge that that truth would make to the way we live. So maybe it's a realization that trusting God with our finances is a good idea. Wait, no, really trusting God with our finances? Actually? Oh, well, maybe it's a realization that uh, God wasn't in charge of our hearts after all, and that that relationship needs to be resubmitted to him and quickly. Or maybe it's a discovery of passages of scripture that we're uncomfortable with and that they should not, cannot be swept under the carpet and ignored or twisted and manipulated into saying something that they're not to suit what we'd like them to be saying. If you are God and I am not, then I had better make sure that my reading of your word, God, is real and faithful, that I'm not finding myself talking over you when you're telling me how you want me to live. If you are God and I am not, then I'd better obey you and not go my own way. If this sounds bold or harsh, I just wanna make clear, I think we need this foundation of obedience. He is Lord, master, boss. When we say yes to him and opt into to that relationship and understand who he is, we make him in charge of us. And that's right. He is the creator. And he's the leader of the mission to bring the kingdom of goodness, of peace, of love, purity and wholesomeness back into this territory and rebellion where we find ourselves living. 
our right response to him is not bargaining or wriggling away from his instructions, his commandments. It's obedience. Mike Pilavacci has a whole talk based out of Jesus' mother's instruction to the servants at that wedding in Cana, where Mary got this. And she said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. It's good. If we are to be Jesus's people, to call him Lord, we have to be willing to do whatever he tells us to do. Which, of course, means being close enough to hear him and faithful enough to follow him when we do hear him. The trouble may come here when we discover just how allied to that rebellious enemy's kingdom we were all along. When God says, give away that money, we get a knot in our stomach and say, but Lord, what about me? I need that for such and such. Or when he says, don't do that. And we have an internal wrestle because we quite like doing that, even though we know it's wrong. And in those moments of temptation, tension, do you notice how we can change our language? We go from saying, I want this, even though I know it's wrong. Well, that would mean conceding, agreeing that we're wrong. So we go from that to maybe saying, oh, I want this, even though I think God is telling me not to. It's okay. I'm not wrong. It's just a disagreement between God and me. You know, like we're equal in this. And anyway, I only think that's what he's telling me. Maybe I've misheard him, or maybe that's not what this Bible verse means. I found this thing on the internet that agrees with me. You are God and I am not. And that realization challenges us over and over as we discover more and more bits of us that would rather keep a hold of the culture of the enemy's world after all. Like an addict being weaned off something that is bad for us, but we still crave it, even though we know it's destructive. Even though we know people are trying to help us, we can twist and turn to find ways to not quite give up that habit or craving. That famous verse that we Christians love to quote, that summarizes so much of our message and our hope in one line in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16, is followed by a stark warning that some of the hostages of the enemy's hostile takeover have not only become friends with our captors, but we'll even fight to, de to defend them when the truly loving rescuer turns up. Let me read it to you. This is John 3, verse 16 and following. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. I mean, it is great, isn't it? Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And those who believe in him are not condemned. But those who do not believe are condemned already because they've not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds 
were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. People have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Ouch. So what is the antidote to this predicament? You are God and I am not. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And this turning to him to be restored, this turning away from our own plans, priorities and desires can also be called repentance. And so for the second half of our verse, and I found this particularly convicting as I was asking the Lord to speak to me for today's message. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart to revere your name. An undivided heart to revere your name. To put it another way, Lord, give me a sole focus on you, to honour you the way that I should. I like how the English Standard Version translation puts it. Unite my heart to fear your name. So let's, let's just take a moment to call something out. Fearing God. If this rings alarm bells for you, as it might for some of us, then again, we just need to make sure that we take this idea of fearing the Lord in the context of his love for us. He is powerful. He is God. It is right and fitting that we recognize this just is not a relationship of equals. But thankfully for us, it is a relationship where this God has given so much to us. He has reached out lovingly so far that we are firm in our understanding of what he is like. He is trustworthy. He is love. We're not to fear him like we fear a cruel boss or a violent animal. It's not that sort of thing. But we're not to cross him either. I'd suggest the relationship of an, a lovingly obedient child not wanting to hurt a lovingly caring parent. Wanting instead to please them by showing how attentive we are. Showing how well we recognise God's wisdom, his authority, and don't brush off his commands like redundant, out-of-fashion leftovers. In Isaiah 66 verse 2, God says, This is the one to whom I'll look, to the humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. If we respect God's authority and leadership, if we take seriously what he says to us, if we honour him as in charge, instead of being like those who in the next verse God describes as having chosen their own ways and in their abominations they take delight. If we give God 
and what he says, the respect that he's due, then our relationship with him will be better, obviously. So it's with no awkwardness about the word fear that I can pray, unite my heart to fear your name. I think there's real honesty in the prayer to unite my heart. It's a prayer that knows that we suffer from a fractured heart, from an ununited self. Disunited? Ununited? Let me know in the comments. An ununited heart that is pulled in several directions. I suspect that describes most of us, that our relationship with Jesus pulls us in one direction, and yet hopes or desires for the stuff that this world offers, or perhaps its pressures of fears of things that this world threatens, pull us in the other direction. Maybe it's money dreams or money worries, relationship desires or dreads, personal pride or shame, or any number of things that pull against a life of loving obedience to God. But whatever it is, this world's systems have hooks in most areas of most of us. Our default position is captive to a world in rebellion against God. Thank the Lord that he came to bring us freedom. Whether this bleak picture of humanity's position is a relief or not, I'm not sure, but we're not alone in this. It's always been the way. Since mankind was first led into disobedience and rebellion against God, the accuser, Ha-Satan, who leads the rebellion, has been simultaneously trapping us into sin and shame and using our guilt to manipulate us further and further into perpetuating his control over us and those around us. Throughout the Bible, the story of God's people is of a stumbling, mistake-making bunch who just cannot keep faithful to God and keep getting tricked or tempted back into the enemy's clutches. In Isaiah 57, God spoke through that prophet to his people and told them exactly what this unfaithfulness is like. And these are sobering words. <clears throat> you have put pagan symbols on your doorposts and behind your doors. You have left me and climbed into bed with these detestable gods. You have committed yourselves to them. You love to look at their bodies. You have gone to Molech, or that could be translated to the king with olive oil and many perfumes, sending your agents far and wide, even to the world of the dead, to shale. How many of us, behind closed doors, have hearts full of signs that we worship other things instead of God? Whether we worship them by wanting them or by fearing them, we have given ourselves to things that are not God. We have cheated on the relationship we were made for, given ourselves away, cheaply. We've not only trusted in idols, we've even gone to great lengths to make ourselves up, to impress these false gods, and to show everyone around us that we're playing the world culture's games. That is stark language. It's uncomfortable. And it gets worse. We then turn to God as if nothing is wrong and we expect our relationship with him to be fine. Give me an undivided heart to revere your name.
I think God hates idols. I think he gets angry at the counterfeits, the distraction deities that the enemy uses to prevent us from getting to know Jesus properly. And my understanding of God's attitude towards us is that he wants to see us set free from these idols and how they trap us, freed for that real relationship with him that we were made for. I think he wants to see us rescued. In fact, that's exactly what he offers us through Jesus's cross and resurrection. He has set us free. A big reset button on the relationship we were made for. God is for the helpless. He's on the side of the trapped and oppressed, the addicted, the heartbroken. That's great news. But it also means that he's not happy when we perpetuate the systems that trap other people, especially if we know better. When I read the Gospels that tell us what Jesus did on earth before the cross and resurrection, they also include that bit too. I see story after story of Jesus loving people who receive God's offer of a restored relationship with him. Whether they were part of God's people yet or not, tax collectors, rich, poor, people who lived with status, people who lived with shame, Jesus met these people, he loved them, grace overflowing. He restored them, restored them to God and restored them amongst their people. And Jesus still loves it when people respond to him with a, yes, I want this. Thank you for meeting me, Lord. If that's you today, just spend time with him now. He wants to meet you. Friends, the one group of people who Jesus was actively angry with, who he reserved his sternest words and his table flipping for, were the should have known betters. The people who had had an experience of God's temple, and enough knowledge of his scriptures to have known that they should have lived with integrity as God's representatives, to have listened to God enough to recognize him when they met him, to know not to treat the temple as a business opportunity. Jesus gave those religious leaders some stern challenges. He also gave them some opportunities to see who he is and to realign themselves with God. And a couple of them do, Nicodemus. But the general picture is, sadly, of a bunch of people who called themselves God's people, who for whatever reason were so out of touch with him that when they met him face to face, they preferred their own power, their own pride. You can see why God was so cross with them. They were his leaders. They had one job, to point people to God. But don't we still find ourselves with similar dangers to our relationship with him now? As God's people, as his priests to the world around us, all of us now, that charge of should have known better could well be leveled at each of us. Lord, save us from being half-hearted, from being compromised in our relationship with you and from being half-hearted or compromised as we represent you to those around us who you want to see set free and restored to you. Or to put that another way, give me an undivided heart to revere your name so that I can revere your name 
and show you the honor you deserve, and so that those around me can revere your name and see what you're really like. My prayer for us this year, beloved Kingdom Vineyard, is that we holify our hearts, that we make them whole instead of divided, that we make them holy by submitting them to God, doing what he tells us to, and making sure that our relationships with God are characterized by closeness and loving obedience, not unfaithfulness or half in, half out love for him. If you have got things that you need to get right with God, it is time. If you need to get right with God for the first time, to accept his offer of lovingly wiping the slate clean and bringing you into his amazing light, his offer of grace and forgiveness, it is time. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart to revere your name. Friends, let 2021 be the year we ask Jesus to show us his way, where we make sure that we spend time with him to listen, to invest in that relationship and to obey, to do whatever he tells us. Because, Lord, you are God and I am not.